During times in this episode, there is sensitive content that may be traumatizing to some audiences. Listener discretion advised. It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest and I met through another adoptee, Veronica, who can be heard on episode 64 of this podcast. Her name is Shelby Redfield Kilgore. And I can recall when I discovered her fantastic YouTube channel, that gives adoptees an opportunity to share their adoption journey. She is an international, transracial, Korean adoptee and generously gives to the adoption community in extraordinary ways while simultaneously going through serious medical health challenges. In 2002, when Shelby was a senior in high school, she first shared her story as an adoptee in a short student documentary. It was a very healing experience for her and also a way to spread awareness and education about her lived experiences. Ever since then, Shelby knew one day she wanted to create a safe space for others to tell their stories through the video lens, to not only be a healing experience for them, but also to let others know they aren't alone. In 2012, Shelby finally brought this dream of hers alive and released her first video about adoption on her YouTube channel, Shelby Redfield Kilgore. A decade later, Shelby continues to share about her story as well as others. Being able to help adoptees tell their truths has been her heart work. Allow me to introduce you to someone who knew as early as five years old that she wanted to find her first mother and would set the intention for that to happen one day. She is one of the most tenacious, determined, and persistent people I know. I sat with her words long after we ended our time together. Hi, Shelby. How are you doing today? Hi, Jennifer. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, too. It's a really beautiful day out, and I got to walk this morning, and that always is the best way for me to start my day. So you're in New Jersey. How is it there? Oh, the weather's really nice out, too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know we were brought together by another adoptee, Veronica, who can be heard on episode 64 of my podcast, and I'm so glad She reached out to me and let me know that you might be interested in sharing a part of your story. I know there's a lot going on in your life, and I guess we could start wherever you wish to. 
Oh, sure. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm always grateful and uh, happy to share about my story about adoption. So I guess I'll just start off with sharing a little bit about the beginning of my adoption story. I was adopted from South Korea when I was almost one years old and I flew over on a plane with other Korean babies that were being adopted by American families. And I was placed into my new mother's arms at the airport in DC. And she always told me that I just stared right into her eyes. And it was like, I was asking, are you my new mom now? And there's a picture that was captured uh, that is always very emotional to look at because I look so serious and I'm only just a baby. At that point, I had been moved three times. So I was with my birth mother for two months before she relinquished me. Then I was at the adoption place where she left me and then a foster home. And then I was flown over to America. And when I was placed into my new father's arms, I immediately cried because he had glasses and blue eyes and this big mustache from, you know, the 80s. And uh, it took me a little bit more time to warm up to him because I was definitely not used to what he looked like. And uh, my mom had dark brown hair and tan skin and dark brown eyes. So she was a bit more familiar looking to me. I've heard what they say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard other Korean adoptees refer to that airplane ride as airplane day. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, my parents, which I'm really, really grateful they did not do this. We never celebrated adoption day or airplane day or that term gotcha day, which makes my stomach turn when I hear it. I mean, other families, if adoptees prefer that name, that's that's their right to have that kind of celebration and however they want to call it. But when I first heard that was back in 2012 when I started documenting stories about adoption and it just made me feel really uneasy when I heard it because I had never grown up with that. Right. And um, Yeah, I was going to ask you how did that make you feel because it made me cringe when I first heard and yeah, cringe, say that. cringe is a great, great word to describe it for me as well. I, I felt like for me, when I was five years old, it's when it hit what adoption meant that I had another mother out there. And it was always fun in this way that my birth mother loved me so much. She gave me up out of love to give me a better life a life that she couldn't provide because she was too poor. And so when it hit me that that's what that meant at five years old, I was absolutely devastated. It was very, very traumatic for me. You know, it, it broke my mom's heart to see that. Uh, and she and my dad always made it seem that 
or always tried to create an environment where I felt safe to talk about my conflicted emotions about adoption. Well, that's good. Yeah, so I had that, and I, I feel like my mom really understood the the grief behind adoption. I've always felt that adoption is both joy and grief, mm-hmm. and that you are able and should be able to hold those two emotions together. Right. I agree, and and that's why I when I once heard Paul Sunderland say that he's not comfortable with just saying adoption. He says it must be relinquishment and adoption whenever we're talking about adoptees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My mom didn't share this with me until I was 11 years old, but she had been raped when she was 15 years old and she became pregnant from that. And her parents told her when they found out that she would have to give her baby away for adoption, that if she decided to keep the baby, she would not be able to stay at the home. She was Mm. only 15 years old. And so this is back, I don't know if you're familiar with the baby scoop era in America, but when... Yeah, I am. Many, many women were coerced into giving their babies away for adoption Mm -hmm. if they were very young or if they were just single and unmarried. Thank goodness my mom was not sent away to one of the homes, uh, but she did feel like she had no other option but to give her baby up for adoption. And so she knew the trauma. I was just thinking that she absolutely could relate to the trauma. Yeah. As a birth mother... Mm -hmm in that loss and so she felt that loss every day and thought about her her son every day so she when her and my dad were not able to have children when you know it was the right time and she had miscarriages and all of all of that heartache then they decided to adopt and she said that she wanted to be the adoptive mother that she hoped her son had. Now, I don't want to stray away from your story, yet I'm curious as to if your mother was able to find her son that she had relinquished at birth. The only reason why I I feel okay sharing about this story is because my mom allowed me to document it on my YouTube channel as a a short documentary and and I was able to film part of their reunion and he her son uh said that was okay as well oh good (laughs) so I just decided to look him up on Facebook and we saw a few of the same names with the job title and there was one picture that just stood out to us and it's like we knew that had to be him. He looked so much like my mom. And uh, then she reached out to him via email. And because he had never been told he had been adopted, uh, you know, it took some time for him to process it. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that because I'm pretty sure the listeners would want to know. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Now I guess we should get back to you and being an international transracial adoptee, you are in reunion to some extent, right? Uh, well, I wouldn't really say in reunion. 
so when I was 17 years old, my parents always knew they wanted to take my brother and I. Uh, my brother is also adopted from South Korea, but we're not biologically related, and he's two and a half years younger than me. Uh, but they always knew they wanted to take us to Korea on a homeland tour. And with that, you have the option of doing a family birth search. And so I had always known ever since I was five that I really wanted to meet my first mother. And I had dreamt about meeting her. It was like something I obsessed about almost. Anytime I had to write something personal for an English paper, like in middle school and high school, it would always be about my adoption story mm. and how I wondered what I looked like you know, what sort of features I had or personality traits. Where where did everything come from? You know, where where did I come from? Who did I look like? Who did I resemble? Right. I, I needed those not only racial mirrors, but genetic mirrors as well. Um, especially growing up in a very predominantly white community. That was always hard because kids would make fun of the way I looked. Uh, I would be bullied. So it was hard to find my identity. It was hard to feel a sense of true belonging. It was hard to have a good sense of self-worth. And all, all with that, I was dealing with anxieties and separation, anxiety, and fear of abandonment. It was very deeply rooted inside of me. I really wanted to meet her. I felt like that would fill this hole that I felt inside that no matter how much I tried to succeed in school and try to make my parents proud, I still felt like something was missing, you know. And so we told the, the group, the, the tour group, that we wanted to search for our birth family. And um, they were able to connect with my first mother but she, she basically said she didn't want to meet me. She was very hesitant. And I remember getting that, that you know, message at home from my mom, and it was absolutely devastating. I felt like a second rejection when I read the letter from the agency. Mm. Also, they sent this letter with all this information. It was only a page and a half of information about my family sort of story. And they had withheld that from me. And they decided that, well, I guess now that she's coming over to Korea and she's 17, that we can share this information with her. And I was so angry that they withheld that. You know, it, it told me how old my birth parents were when they had me, which was not very young. They were like 26 and 27. And that I was conceived illegitimately and they also named or not named but listed the different half brothers and half sisters I had on each side and I had always wondered you know if I had other siblings yeah they, they listed their heights you know how tall they were and that they were factory workers and so all this information I had wondered about mm -hmm. so it made me very upset and then when we finally went on the trip, it was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. It was for like two and a half weeks, and it was very emotional. Uh, we call it an emotional roller coaster ride because you would go sightseeing and 
see beautiful sites in Korea and then you would go to an orphanage and they would make you cry or, you know. But I was able to meet my foster mom and I told them that I really wanted to meet my, my mother, that we were already in Korea. Could you just tell her and ask her again? And so at the very end of the trip, she finally uh, said yes. And so she came with her aunt and she, not with her aunt, I'm sorry, my, my birth aunt. She came with her sister to come meet me and my family. So and you it was weren't very... able to meet your birth mother? Yeah, when I was 17, um, it was very, it was very emotional. At the time, it was the dream come true that, that I had always wanted. It was funny. We didn't think that I looked like her. We thought we looked more like my aunt. She was very sort of stoic at first, which I thought was strange because I'm very emotional and I wear my heart on my sleeve. Mm -hmm. And so she didn't give you a hug didn't embrace no, you she, she did give me a hug but she said she wasn't going to cry she said she was gonna stay strong mm. um you know we at the time we didn't think of asking a lot of family health questions it was more about sharing about our story we had an interpreter because none of us could speak korean and we had made this little photo album for her to look through of me growing up with my brother and family and she shared a little bit about how she said she always knew she was going to give me away and that she had thought of me every day that she loved me and that she did give me my name I had always wondered if like she had given the name that was on my adoption paperwork which is a uh, you me and it means beautiful truth or shining light. Oh, wow. um, and so that was very important for me to know, like, if I was named by her and she confirmed that she did. Were you her that. firstborn? No. Okay. I was her third child and she had two sons before me. So she had those uh, two boys with her husband. Yeah, I think she was estranged from her husband um, when she uh, met my birth father and had me. Okay. Were you and able so, to... I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Were you able to connect with your siblings? No. Okay. She, she told me that she had remarried. She had kept me a secret. I am not known, you know, to her, her new family. I don't know if her... Her other sons, my half-brothers, remember me. I, do, I don't know. You know, the hard part that we discovered was that over in Korea, this is still pretty prevalent today, that single unwed mothers are ostracized in their society by their family, friends, and community, and co-workers. Mm. They are pretty much also coerced into relinquishing their babies for adoption, even if they have the financial means to take care of them. Mm. Um, and also when they get remarried, the husband would not consider children from their previous marriage. I think that's the case, uh, but also certainly illegitimate children. Sorry, I don't know if you heard that. Illegitimate children, they would not accept them. And so that's, 
I'm sure that's a big reason why she kept me a secret and still does to this day, which is very hard for me to understand. I think growing up in such an open, communicative family about our feelings, it's hard for me to understand people that still think it's like the right thing or the good thing to keep things secret, secret like this. Yeah, the cultures are so different. You would think yeah. that by now they would be a, a little more in line with caring and loving another mm-hmm. human being. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, like, at the end, she did cry when she hugged me. You know, I did feel her love, which is something I had wondered about my entire life up until that point. So that meant a lot that I finally did see her walls come down a bit. And mm-hmm. I, I could feel her, her love, but also mixed with much anguish and pain. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think also another hard thing, finding out, you know, because at, at the time, you know, when I was there for two and a half weeks, it was an incredible experience, but it took me a couple of years to process everything. And it was very, very emotional. It was very, very difficult. Did you have someone and- to help you process those things with? Sure. I mean, I talked so much to my parents and my brother, but it was more internalized because I was also, you know, a senior in high school and then going off to college away from home. So there was a lot of things going on, a lot of different changes. My parents were also separating. So that was another trauma, another big heartache for me to process and deal with uh, on top of uh, the adoption and what happened in Korea. Because I also found out that because I was illegitimate at the time I was born, I wouldn't have been considered a citizen. So I wouldn't have been able to go to school and get an education. So it was it was really hard. I felt like most of my life I had had a very positive experience or my positive outlook on my adoption. You know, I always thought something good comes out of something bad. So I had that sort of view. So I I skipped, I felt like the stage of resentment, you know, there's all of these different stages that you go through from a loss. So, you know, I definitely dealt with grief. I'm at a loss, like what are the other stages of grief? But the one of them that I skipped as a kid was anger and resentment. And then that came later in my very young adult years. Yeah, that struck me when we last talked, when you shared with me, you're angry as an adult, but not as a child, I think is, is how you put it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what I would say. I think it's because I had so, I have so much love for my parents and that I was able to express my conflicting emotions yeah. And the challenges of growing up as an as an Asian person, a child in America, that was a lot of the things the children would, would say that were very cruel or racist. I internalized. I didn't share that with my parents. So when I started writing about it in spaces that, you know, were public and my 
shared with my parents, they were like, they didn't know about it. So it was, it was hard. I feel like transracial adoption is a very tricky area, very sensitive because I don't feel like a lot of white adoptive parents are prepared to raise children of color and how can they prepare them for the world, you know, when they grow up and also when they're children, how do they equip them properly to respond to unkind people and their comments and how the world will see them? Yeah, I hear that a lot from transracial adoptees. Mm-hmm. And I I know that probably had a lot to do with you creating a space, your YouTube channel, to allow adoptees to share their stories. I know I've, I've listened and watched uh, many of the interviews I remember David Bynum on there, and I thought, this is really a great platform to be mm-hmm. able to see and hear from adoptees. So thank you oh, for yeah. that. Yeah. And then with your friend Veronica, self-publishing the book Rooted in Adoption, I think is fantastic. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I knew that I wanted to somehow help share other adoptee stories Um, when I was in high school. I knew I wanted to give a platform through the video lens and through writing because when I was a senior in high school after my trip to Korea, my brother and I did this short student documentary with two other students and it, it featured our story going back to Korea. And it was very healing to share our story that way. It's a different way to process it than talking with your parents or with a therapist or with friends. So I knew I wanted to to give that to other people later on in life when I was an adult. So I started making videos about adoption in, back in 2012, and it's been my heart work. It's something I'm super passionate about, and I started uploading the videos I filmed and edited onto my YouTube channel, and Veronica reached out to me. She is an adoptee, a domestic infant adoptee, and she was very interested in sharing her story. And so that's how we, con- how we connected. And then years later, after I had, you know, we had first connected, I had actually, I had reached back out to her because I would get comments over the years from about the videos of other adoptees or, or adoptive parents just saying how moved they were by the video you know, that they had watched that I had created. So I got this one message from an adoptee who said, watching Veronica's video, she articulated what has been a struggle for me my entire life about how I feel about adoption. And so it's it's really healing for other people to hear and see other adoptees speak when it's been a struggle for them to identify their own emotions about their adoption and then to find someone that has articulated it and is able to connect and identify with what they're saying. It helps them to feel not alone. Absolutely. And And many adoptees have said that other adoptees put words 
that they never thought they could find to express how they feel. Exactly. And for me, I had always wanted to meet my first mother growing up as a kid and then speaking with other adoptees and how they have connected with siblings and their first father. That kind of opened up my own view of adoption and like where my heart was as far as now yearning to have relations or knowledge of my my siblings and and first father i think it also is another layer of loss that adoptees find out that they feel later on in life that we don't have those relationships either that we have lost those as well when I reached out to Veronica and told her that, then we connected, and she had come up with this idea about collecting adoptee reflections and putting them in a book that we could self-publish through Book Baby. And I thought it was an absolutely wonderful idea. And so we gathered almost 50 adoptee reflections and were able to publish that back in May 2020, so right after the pandemic hit. It's called Rooted in Adoption, a collection of adoptee reflections. So I'm very proud of that work, and I'm very proud that we're, we were able to do that together. As you should be, and I'm so glad yeah. you, you both did that. Yeah. Yeah. I just, and then back. Yeah, oh, sorry, I just want to go back uh, quickly, if you don't mind talking about your recent connection with your biological father through a third party. This is a, a very raw part of my story. Uh, since it's so recent and still something I am going through, but I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer right after the pandemic hit. So in April of 2020, it was absolutely shocking for me and terrifying. And I worked with a geneticist to find out it runs in my family. So I did find out that I'm bracket two positive That was also very eye-opening to me that why, why didn't I think to ask when I had the chance, you know, about my family health history more in depth. So I started another family search because I had not had any contact with my first mother or aunt since I first met them because she had still kept me a secret. And so I felt like if she wanted to reach out, I would give her that space, but she never did. And that was, that was painful. But I worked through a third party for them to try and locate my first mother and first father. And they did. My mother was very upset about being contacted again because I'm still a secret. And she, she said that there was no cancer in the family that she knew of. They also were able to connect with my first father. He said the same thing. And this was like very early on. And then I remember still back in 2020, my first father wanted to do a DNA test to make sure I was his daughter. And I just became really upset because I was dealing with chemo the aftermath of chemo, a bilateral mastectomy and lymph node removal under my right arm, radiation therapy and occupational therapy. And I was like, I've already done a DNA test. I've done 23andMe. I didn't realize at the time that Korea has like different DNA tests. They didn't have 23andMe. 
So I just stopped contact. I was just exhausted, exhausted from hitting just walls with this search and just trying to find information because I wasn't asking for a family health history. But I also thought this is something that they should tell their children. I don't know which which parent I got the BRCA2 mutation from. Right. Yeah, I... I don't know. I also feel like there's so many lies surrounding my adoption that she still lies and keeps me a secret. So I don't know if I fully trust her. Fast forward a couple years. Let me me just say this. I I know because I'm I'm just sitting with you sharing the um, diagnosis that you received in 2020 during a pandemic. And Mm -hmm. like that's just heavy and hard. And I'm sorry that happened. I know that combined with not having medical history, it's it's just got to be overwhelming you know I've talked with you before now and I know you're doing much better uh, Mm -hmm. but at that time I know that was difficult and I'm sorry for that thank you for for all of that I'm still going through so much I actually haven't had the space or the energy to share about this but I will share about this now with you because I'm sure by the time this comes out I'll have shared on social media But just recently, this year, I found out I have what they think is called a mengenoma, which is a brain tumor, but it's supposedly benign. And this was caught in a brain scan that my oncologist decided for me to have because I've had constant headaches. It could also be from the medications that I'm on and the treatment, it's very aggressive treatment that I'm on to help keep the cancer from returning. I am also dealing with a brain tumor. And so I decided to reach back out, you know, to my contact that has been facilitating communication. I gave her this update of my health because I feel like also my half siblings should know about this, that this is also something that could be that could run in in the family. I don't know, maternal or paternal. So it's still up in the air what what's gonna happen with my treatment for the brain tumor, but it's most likely I'll have to have gamma knife radiation. I just don't know when. I tell this information so that they can share with their children. Right. So that they can be aware and know. But also, like, is anyone else in my family, have they caught something like this? And so my first father has been responsive because I had said I would do a DNA test this time. I said I would do that. If that would help him be more open about his family and family health history, then I would be willing to do that. And he said, well, you can send a picture to, you know, the third-party contact and then I can decide. And Mm -hmm. so I sent a few pictures, one when I was a little girl and growing up and now as an adult. And he told this third party contact that I look so much like him. And then he sent a picture of him. And it was such a strange feeling to see a picture of my first father. Uh, And then really to see that I actually really look like one of my parents. Right. 
Um, I'm glad he did that. I'm glad he sent a picture. Yeah. And I just want to go back just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I really don't know what to say with, with all that you shared um, mm-hmm. about your health, um, but I appreciate it. I think that's quite generous mm-hmm. of you to be vulnerable because many times there, there's someone listening that is going through something similar mm-hmm. and you you just embody wanting to help other people whether we're talking mm-hmm. about your platform, YouTube channel, or, you know, being on social media, uh, mm-hmm. writing the book with Veronica, like, and then even wanting, like you say, your siblings to know what's going on mm-hmm. with you so that they can also be proactive or just aware mm-hmm. of what, yeah. you know, what's going on with family genetics. So thank you for that. Um, You're very welcome. And I absolutely will keep you in my prayers and that everything be a healing journey towards wellness, like complete wellness. And and I I really just have a couple more questions because I really want to honor your time. I know you've got a lot on your plate today. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I usually ask a guest, because it's so important to me to know the different reasons people find it a rewarding thing to be better connected to the community. Obviously, you're, you're very connected um, doing what you do, the work you do. Um, what's most rewarding about that? Connecting with the adoptee community has made me feel very seen and very heard. And it's also been very healing for me to help other adoptees and adoptive families to share their story. It's enriched my life and enriched my knowledge about the adoption community in so many different ways. I hope to continue the work that I do for the rest of my life. And I I love the relationships that I have created, uh, just connecting with other adoptees and documenting some of their stories. I have made some lifelong friends and that's been incredibly meaningful to me. So true. I agree. I feel that I keep meeting more and more adoptees through adoptees and there's something very special about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And while our stories uh, are very different, there's that common thread of relinquishment and adoption. And I, at this very moment, can't think of a bigger topic when it comes to the trauma that we, or traumas that mm-hmm. we have um, experienced. So I um, I can't think of anything else. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to share? Uh, no, I just, <laughs> I just really hope like society can see adoption as very complex and full of trauma and grief. And also so many adoptees are incredibly resilient, but at the same time they have to be because we're survivors. Mm. And that's just what I want. I want society to recognize that and to honor that and to be understanding of the complexities in adoption. And that is a lifelong journey for so many of us to process. Well said. That loss. Yeah. 
I also really wish that and believe that family health history, like if if it's a choice for the first parents to relinquish their children for adoption, that family health history should be transparent and it should be something that is updated for the adoptee throughout their lives as new things come to light. I feel like it should be a law. It just seems so irresponsible and dangerous not to have that information. It should be a right just like domestic adoptees and their right to their birth certificates. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. I agree with you. And one more thing. There are just <laughs> there are just so many parallels that I have come across with my breast cancer journey and my adoption journey. Adoption is something that happens to the child. They have no choice. This is what happened to me with breast cancer as well. And there has been so much loss, so much physical and emotional trauma from this journey that I am fighting to survive. And that's also something I have experienced as an adoptee. And so I just hope people recognize, recognize all of that. When a trauma happens, it's out of our control and it's something that takes us a lifetime to process. Yes. Yes. I really just want to hold space for that. That was powerful what you just said. You're so welcome. I can't believe I did not cry during this interview. You usually cry. I think I'm just at the point where so much is going on in my life with all the doctor's appointments and adoption as well that I'm almost becoming uh, desensitized. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Just almost just my body has just shut down from allowing those kinds of emotions because you get to a point where you can't keep crying. You can't keep screaming and yelling, you know? <laughs> I think that's just kind of what, where I am, am right now. It's yeah. like, okay, I'm going to protect you now because you can't keep doing all of those things. It's too harmful for your body. I often think that when I cry, it, I feel better. Mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying. If you've been doing a, a lot of it, then maybe you are wanting to give yourself a break from it. But mm-hmm. I totally understand and get wanting to cry, even though you didn't cry here, that you still feel good. For you to hold it in your body, I still want you to be all right, you know? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I do so much. Like, I have a therapist. I read. I journal extensively. And I just picked up watercolor painting. It's very calming. So I I do everything I can think of to try and calm myself. I pray as much as I can. I compose and write music as well. So I do all of the different outlets you can think of to help process what's going on for me. And sketching, I do some sketches as well. But sometimes it's just not enough. (laughs) Mm. Uh, 
Well, Shelby Redfield Kilgore, I thank you so much for taking the time out to have this conversation with me. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to meet with you and to, to talk with you. I, too, believe that all adoptees, at the very least, should be provided with a full medical history. I can recall being flippant and angry at the doctor's office through the years when unable to provide any information to my health care providers. We often learn of our predispositions later rather than sooner in life, when if we knew better, we might do better. I was amazed and happy to learn that Shelby, as a 17-year-old Korean adoptee, was able to meet her birth mother in Korea. It suggests that as difficult as it may be for international adoptees to reunite with biological family members, it's not impossible. And though the culture in Korea doesn't embrace or support unwet pregnancies, her first mother, through the shame and secrecy, agreed to see her daughter on two occasions. Secrets and rejection can be so hard, and it's far more complicated than a simple answer to why that happens to many adoptees. Grief seems to follow the complexity of loss, and if an adoptee finds themselves angry as an adult, then there are a number of reasons to support feeling that way. It has been written that the five stages of grief developed by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross are sometimes cycled around until they aren't in the journey of relinquishment and adoption. The five stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Thank you, Shelby, for creating time between work, doctor's appointments, and the other moving parts of your personal life to have this conversation with me. You are a warrior and a reminder for me to remain vigilant and encouraged no matter what challenges may come my way. It was the best-selling author, Richard Carlson, who wrote books titled Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And then in 2002, he published What About the Big Stuff? Being with Shelby reminded me of a line in that book. Trust that you will know what to do next when the time is right. I believe she inspires so many people by sharing her deeply personal journey as an adoptee and as a human being face-to-face with the big stuff. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianegostin.com. Thank you for being here, and please check out my website for other episodes. Once upon a time in adopteeland.com.